Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. And I think there even was a scene originally at some point in Drive where there was a sort of shootout and I was there uh, and then it got cut and we didn't shoot it. So I, yeah, so it was nice to get. Well, it's always fun to smash a car up with a tire iron if there's no consequences. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a delight. <laughs> Hello, 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 and welcome to the first 2021 episode of Push the Envelope. We did it, guys. We made it through 2020, and uh, everything became instantly better on January 1st, right? <laughs> no, no, it got it got kind of worse. Um, okay, well, we are, are here to talk about some things that are actually good that's going on in the world. That giggle you just heard is actually our senior writer, Katie Reif, who recently got the chance to chat with Academy Award and Golden Globe-nominated actress Carrie Mulligan, who is in a very well-received film right now that just came out called Promising Young Woman. So we'll be hearing from Carrie in just a bit. But first, I'm going to chat with Katie about the 2021 Gotham Awards, which were awarded this past Monday. And if you are a long-time listener, long, long time, uh, six-month listener of Push the Envelope, you may recall that Katie and our film editor... A.A. Dow joined us when the Gotham nominations were announced, kind of going over their thoughts then. And so, Katie, I thought it was a great bookend to have you here now to discuss the actual winner. So thanks for joining Push the Envelope. Always happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, thanks. Well, let's just dive right in with discussing the Gotham Awards, which, you know, aren't always necessarily the biggest you know, litmus test for for what's mm-hmm. going to do well at the Academy Awards. But it does give maybe some smaller films, uh, it raises their profile, which which can help them if they were kind of on the bubble in terms of consideration. Would you agree with that assessment? Oh, absolutely. I would put the Gotham Awards kind of in the same category as the Independent Spirit Awards, which serves a similar purpose like you were talking about. I'm going to be honest. Some people have some very complicated equations and formulas for like, well, if it wins a SAG and then, you know, two writers guilds, then it's a shoe in and I honestly don't understand, like, how the math on all that works. You know, I'm a liberal arts major through and through. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I think that you are correct in that I think it's a combination of these kind of awards and the Guild Awards, because a lot of the people that are voting in the Guild Awards end up voting in the Oscars. And so, you know, if you kind of combine those two factors, then you can kind of gaze into your crystal ball and predict what's going to happen with the Oscars. And like you said, if a film's on the bubble, this type of recognition can really push it forward. Yeah, because I mean, you know, as much as uh, everyone in the industry takes the Oscars seriously, or at least most do, uh, you can't see everything. So these also are, Mm -hmm. these early awards give them opportunity to be like, oh, maybe I should check that out uh, in case people start talking about it a lot more. So, you know, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit, I think. But we had some fantastic choices mm-hmm. here. 
Um, I think, you know, let's let's start off with the big one and, and then kind of work our way down. But best feature, we mentioned when we discussed this in November that all five of the nominated films were uh, female directors, which was really uh-huh. cool. And there were some favorites among here. I know First Cow, um, which was nominated, was, uh, you know, at the top of our of our best films of the year. Um, Absolutely. But, but a lot of these were, were on there. Um, but the winner ultimately was Nomadland, which I know you had actually mentioned as a definitely a top contender here. Yeah, Nomadland was my number one film of the year. I think Chloe Zhao is the director of this film. She did a film called The Writer a few years ago that got, that was a little more of one of these kind of low key buzz films that uh, we mentioned before. But Nomadland won top prizes at Venice and it won top prizes at TIFF. And, you know, were theaters open, I think that this would be like the theatrical event of the season would be Nomadland. And this is kind of her year to get her big film festival laurels before she's actually sucked into the Marvel movie machine because she's doing a Marvel movie next. So that should be interesting. Well, it's and that's what's so fascinating about, you know, I think being both an actor and Direct, or just a creator in Hollywood these days is that it, people used to kind of have their niche and stick to that. So if you were an mm-hmm. art house director, you just, you, you did art house films. If you were a big budget blockbuster director, you did big budget blockbusters. And now we're seeing everyone kind of get to do everything, which is super, super cool because they bring different elements of what they've worked on in the past to obviously their, their bigger pictures, which is really, really exciting. Yeah, and some directors end up kind of becoming house directors for those big blockbuster companies. I'm thinking specifically of the Russo brothers who have just kind of, once they got into that uh, particular filmmaking machine, I guess you could call it. It seems very well-oiled machine over there. Um, they kind of <laughs> stuck in there. And then other directors, like you said, kind of pop in and pop out, like Ryan Coogler, who did Black Panther. You know, he had made a few, I think his path, to making Black Panther is more along the lines of what Chloe Zhao's doing than, say, you know, like the Russos who made one and stayed in there forever. I, I think she'll probably pop in and pop out because, like I said, this film has been very well received and I would fully expect to see more of it as the award season goes on. So she's got this to <laughs> fall back. She has being, you know, a major <laughs> auteur art house director to fall back on. <laughs> You know, you know, just that. So, yeah, no she's, big got, deal. she's got nothing. No big deal. No big deal. Um, well, let's talk about best screenplay, um, mm-hmm. which actually there was a tie. There was a tie here for that. We had Rata Blank for the 40 year old version. And Dan, I'm going to hope I get this last name right. Um, Salit. It's S A L L I T T. Apologies, Dan, if that was incorrect, uh, for 14. Um, and I know mm-hmm. you've seen one of these two and are a big fan of it. Yeah, I've seen the 40-year-old version, and I thought it's, I think it's so great. I think best screenplay is the laurel that this film deserves in particular. Rada Blank's, uh, the satire in the film, there's a lot of satire of, like, of theater and the art world that's really, really sharp and funny. And it's, and there have been plenty of sort of behind-the-scenes you know, satires over the years, showbiz satires, but hers brought something really fresh and new to it. And I really hope to see her doing more work. 14 is a film that I personally have not seen, but I know it was very high on A.A. Doubt's best films of the year list. And Dan Sallett is actually a film critic uh, in New York, who I guess uh, all the other film critics in New York see it, know him. So that might have helped, you know. And Rada Blank is a is a New York person, too. So I, I imagine the voting was pretty split between these two in the category. <laughs> 
I guess it's fair. If if you're if yeah. you if you don't do well in this uh and you have all those friends, uh maybe maybe they're not your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were blowing smoke a little bit when they said, right? oh, I loved right? your screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's talk about um, the Bingham Ray Breakthrough Director Award, which went mm-hmm. to Andrew Patterson for The Vast of Night, which is another film that was beloved by the AV Club this year. I know it was on, um, Absolutely. you know, even halfway through the year was one of the standouts on our, our best of the year so far list in the summer. Yeah, I saw this film originally last March, like, uh, or excuse me, May. Last In May 2019, I first saw this movie. This movie is a great and fitting winner for this category. It's a very strong category. Some of the other names you have on here are people that, uh, you know, you see other in other places in this award. Rada Blank was nominated because she also directed 40-Year-Old Version. There's Channing Godfrey Peoples, who directed Miss Juneteenth, a, a film that we'll mention a little bit later here. And then two films, uh, Alex Thompson for St. Francis and Carlo Mirabella Davis for Swallow. And all those films were ones that you kind of saw in the conversation throughout the year as best films of the year. But The Vast of Night has a very interesting and unusual trajectory. This sort of mythical indie film rising out of nowhere to fame that doesn't happen as much as it used to back in the 90s. It's a very 90s Sundance kind of story, except it played at slam dance. And whatever comes out of Slam Dance, not much, I'll tell you. But <laughs> The Vast of Night did. And then it played a whole bunch of uh, festivals in the fall, played all your genre fests, it played TIFF in 2019. And then it finally came out in spring of 2020 through Amazon Studios. Amazon Studios bought it off of the festival stuff. And this is a true example of a group of people, total outsiders, just filmmakers working in Oklahoma who... It's kind of gathered together the residents of the small town and brought a lot and kind of called in favors from all across the region. They called all these classic car clubs and asked people to bring their cars to the set because the film set in the 1950s. And they managed to cobble together a very polished looking period piece that has some very impressive um, cinematography in it and direction. There's one shot in the film, you know, the I'm sure, you know, the famous Copacabana tracking shot in Goodfellas. Mm -hmm. Everyone does. And so this has one of those kind of ones where the camera follows people all through the town, down the streets and into a high school gym. And there's one shot. It's a continuous tracking shot. And there's one part of it where there has to be a cut. But it's hard to see where the cut is and the director refuses to explain how they did the shot. It's (laughs) I did a group you know, interview with him back at Fantastic Fest in 2019. And the first thing he said when we walked in the interview, he said, I'm not going to explain how I did the tracking shot. That's for me to know. (laughs) It's kind of a valuable card for me to hold. So I'm not going to talk about it. (laughs) And we all said, okay, fair enough. And you could see people crossing off on their list of questions that one, because it truly is. um, It's a very polished film. And a very inventive film in terms of its uh, structure. It's structured like an old Twilight Zone episode. It's very much like in so like it's very it's it's a lot like a radio play that also has some very showy uh, camera work in it. And so for the all those reasons, it's sort of your classic bursting out onto the scene with an impressive debut type of feature. And that's why I think it's a great example for this director award. 
Yeah, well, I mean, and, you know, who knows? Maybe they're hoping in acceptance speeches he'll he'll just let out his secret <laughs> finally. But no, it's good for him to, to hold it close to the vest. Oh, um, yeah, it's very smart, I think. Yeah. Uh, for, uh, you know, let's jump to Best Actress because you mentioned Miss Juneteenth being nominated, uh, the director, um, Channing mm-hmm. Godfrey Peoples being nominated yep. uh, for the Breakout Director Award. Uh, but Nicole Bihari, the star of the film, uh, yes. got the Best Actress Award. And I know this is a film that you also loved. Yes, I also very much loved Miss Juneteenth. Miss Juneteenth is a film that is more about the performances. You know, certain films are are notable for their cinematography or their writing. But Miss Juneteenth has at its center a mother-daughter relationship. So in the film, Nicole Bahari plays a former Texas beauty queen. She was in a Miss Juneteenth pageant, which is, you know, of course, tied to the holiday in June. And when she was a teenager, she won this award. And now she has a teenage daughter and she wants her daughter to win the pageant because she gets a college scholarship if she wins. But the daughter you know, wants to make her own path in life. And so this sort of tension is at the center of the story, but it's also very sweet and believable and the relationship between the mother and daughter. But Bahari in this film is just, she's extraordinary because she's playing like a single mom with two jobs who works really, really hard to try to, she's kind of living through her daughter and she and all of these things could go into a very melodramatic place, but Bahari keeps it very grounded and real and loving and sympathetic. And there's just a warmth that emanates from this movie and her performance. I love that. I, I And, you know, we always root for an underdog and not that mm-hmm. she was necessarily an underdog, uh, but up against names like Carrie Coon and Frances McDormand, it was nice to see um, nice to see her shine through. Yes. And I recommend going on social media and looking up her performance speech. Or, so sorry, her acceptance speech for this award. Um, she spends a good 30 seconds at the beginning trying to unmute her Zoom because she really did not expect to win. <laughs> <laughs> so she's kind of fumbling around like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And that's an interesting uh, point. You know, uh, we didn't mention up at the top, obviously, because 2021 is no better than 2020 so far. This was a kind of combination of pre-recorded stuff and live uh, acceptances, which mm-hmm. is kind of a taste of what we could possibly get for for future award shows this this mm-hmm. year of course with the mm-hmm. grammys choosing to delay because obviously there's so performance heavy and you know that requires a lot yeah. more people than so we'll 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 see how that all goes but this was an interesting example of of kind of a, a melding between pre-recorded and live uh, and you have moments like that which are very endearing which is sweet uh let's move over to best actor uh mm-hmm. which went to Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal which those of you that listened to Push the Envelope well we got to chat with Riz uh, a few weeks ago about his performance here uh which is it's it's just it's so the, the film it, it's one of those ones that stays with you just because mm-hmm. uh basically the the elevator pitch of it it is a a drummer who whose life is music and all of a sudden he starts to go deaf and lose his hearing uh, and what does that do to a person? Um, obviously, anybody, uh, it would be a major life change. But for somebody whose whole life is is auditory, you know, completely rocks him. And you see him go through this transformation. And he does mm-hmm. such a fantastic job in this film. I was I was super excited to see him him take it. What were your thoughts? Yeah, my thoughts were uh, when I saw the film, too, I was really blown away by his performance. I felt like it had... It was a very specific type of person that I recognized from kind of, you know, just 
going to shows and being, you know, a big music person when I was in my like early mid 20s, this type of guy. So in the film, he's like he's a recovering addict and he he's one of those people who gets all of his sort of aggression out. He's got a lot built up inside and he gets it out through his music. And so that's part of what the big identity crisis is. Right. And so the interiority of that, of someone who's holding on to a lot of things inside and not expressing them, he really conveys that really beautifully in this film. You know, like uh, the scene that I'm thinking of is there's one scene where his sort of mentor at the facility where he checks in to try to learn how to live with his hearing loss uh, suggests that he goes up in this room with a piece of paper, writes down how he feels, and he just has a really tough time doing that, expressing himself in a direct way like that. And his acting in that scene is just phenomenal. Wonderful scene. That If I was to pick his his awards clip, that's the one I would pick. (laughs) I just think it breaks my heart to see him ruin a donut, though. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to lie. It was beautiful acting, but that was what I took away from that moment. Um... (laughs) Donuts play a for those of you that have not seen the film. Donuts play a a small but significant role uh, in in a in a in his work in that room, and uh, uh, yeah, it just it made me want a donut real bad. Well, that's a great suggestion if you're putting, you know. Hopefully, uh, I would expect to see some of these names pop up again throughout awards season. Uh, Riz Ahmed, because. Among critics, at least, it was pretty widely, uh, you know, not universally, of course, because it never is, but it was widely acknowledged as the best male performance of the year among critics. So I would expect to see it come up again. And, um, you know, if you're planning your awards night menus, maybe include some donuts for Sound of Metal. (laughs) But um, it's also significant that he won up against Chadwick Boseman, who is also very good in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And that was also his final performance on film. So uh, oftentimes uh, actors will win awards posthumously as sort of a... um, you know, a, a fair, to honor a final their legacy farewell. in their life. Yes, yes. To honor their legacy. Yes, it's a it's a a send off for an actor, and the fact that Ahmed still won with that factor involved really shows the momentum behind this performance. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of someone with momentum, we have Breakthrough Actor, same as we had Breakthrough Director. We have the Breakthrough Actor Award, which went to Kingsley uh, Benadir for Regina King's film One Night in Miami, which is a newer addition here. I have to admit, I haven't gotten to see it, but I'm super mm-hmm. excited to. Yeah, I w- saw this one at TIFF and wrote uh, just a brief review of it out of TIFF. And then uh, Shannon Miller, our news editor, wrote the review for AV Club. It's up this week. She also enjoyed the film. Um, speaking of your awards season menus, you should have some ice cream for one night in Miami. Um, because in the film, Kingsley Benadir, he plays Malcolm X, who in this film, uh, it's a little different than, you know, Denzel Washington in Spike Lee's film. You know, people remember Malcolm X as this very fiery political figure. But in this film, you also see the more private side of Malcolm X, I guess. He honestly comes across as a little bit of a nerd in the movie. (laughs) Um, So the film, it's based on a true story of a night where Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali, shortly before he changed his name to Muhammad Ali, all met one night in Miami in a hotel room. And 
it's based on a play and it sort of imagines what the four might have talked about that evening. And, uh, you know, they touch on a lot of things about the civil rights movement at that particular moment in time and also about, uh, you know, black masculinity. Those are two of the major themes of the dialogue. And uh, in the film, Muhammad Ali just won a fight and uh, his name's Cassius Clay then. But he just want to fight and he and the other guys want to go out and have a party. But Malcolm X pulls out this vanilla ice cream and says, hey, guys, what if we just stay here and have ice cream because he doesn't drink because he's Muslim? <laughs> and that's just sort of a really like endearing care. One of the many endearing character details that Kingsley Benadir brings to this role that I, and in the film, he's also a photographer and he's kind of taking pictures of all his friends and stuff like that. And I think, yeah, it's definitely a standout performance and a standout characterization in a standout film because that was also Regina King's directorial debut. Yes, yes. I'm super, super excited about it. I got to chat with her about that, God, a year and a half ago at this point, probably. And she was so excited to get to work on this film um, and just could not wait. Um, So I'm so glad that it's finally coming out and it's being so well-received. Uh, well, there were other things well received at the Gotham Awards. Uh, just to run down the the other categories, we had Best Documentary, which was a tie that went to A Thousand Cuts, as well as Time. Uh, Best International Feature went to Identifying Features, which is per- an aptly named title for that category. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we had they also honor um, Best Long Format, so over forty minute series, uh, and Best Short Format, under forty minute series. Otherwise. Other places known as drama and comedy, but they took into account that, you know, these days, genre, what does that even mean? Sure. Um, and uh, Breakthrough Series long format went to Watchmen, and Breakthrough Series short format went to I May Destroy You, which are both fantastic television offerings. If you have not checked them out, most certainly do. Another thing you should check out is Promising Young Woman, which, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, it stars Carrie Mulligan. And Katie, you recently got to sit down with Carrie to discuss her role in this film. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what the film is, uh, and then we can take a listen to your conversation. Sure. Promising Young Woman is the debut as a writer and director from Emerald Fennel, who's an actress. She's on The Crown, new season The Crown, which I haven't seen yet, but she plays Camilla. And she's also... Uh, she's great like, on it. I mean, yeah, I, 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 yeah she's great. Uh, it, it's fascinating. I could talk for an hour about The Crown, but we won't do that. <laughs> but continue, continue. <laughs> um, so she also directed the first season of Killing Eve, which, you know, was very, very sharp and smart and a little bit wicked. And that translates through into Promising Young Woman. It's a very fresh and original take on the revenge film and particularly the rape revenge film, which is a genre that for a long time has been sort of disreputable and kind of tossed in the exploitation bucket and in the, very popular in the 70s, but also very rough. And I wouldn't recommend watching a lot of them if you're if it's not your kind of thing. But this one brings that sort of concept into the mainstream, and it specifically deals with the topic of sexual assault on campus and campuses not punishing boys who are accused of sexual assault and sort of and it follows the fallout of that through several years in a very stylized and pointed it's this film it's not a comedy and it's not a thriller and it's not a drama (laughs) and it's all those things at the same time it's very genre bending and carrie mulligan plays the title character the promising young woman who dropped out of med school following her best friend was attacked at a party and so she drops out of med school to help her friend cope and the film picks up several years later when she is 
kind of taking out the trauma of that situation on predatory men everywhere. It's a it's a really fun change for Carrie Mulligan, who in the past has played sort of the love interest of violent men in Drive and Public Enemies. And that's actually how we kick off the interview about how this time she gets to be the one holding the tire iron. I don't even remember, but we talked uh, a couple years ago when you did Wildlife. Oh, hello. Oh, well, lovely to talk to you again. <laughs> so, when you look over your filmography, you've been in some violent films. You know, I'm thinking like Public Enemies or Drive, but you didn't really play violent characters. Was it yeah. fun to kind of flip the script and be the one beating the windshield with the tire iron this time? <laughs> it was quite fun. Yeah. It's funny, I said to someone the other day that when we were shooting Drive, I always wanted to sort of get out of the elevator and be <laughs> in a scene. And I think there even was a scene originally at some point in Drive where there was a sort of shootout I think in the basement and I was there uh, and then it got cut and we didn't shoot it. So I, yeah, so it was nice to get, well, it's always fun to smash a car up with a tire iron if there's no consequences. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a delight. <laughs> yeah. When I watched that scene in particular, I was like, Oh, I bet that was fun to shoot. <laughs> it really was. It really was. And I only, I remember being disappointed when we, cause we only got to do it three times because we only had three sets of taillights. And I was like, come on, let's do another one. And Emerald was like, no, no, calm down, buddy. Give back to our eye. She's like, we only have so many cards to stretch. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so one thing about this film, the dialogue is really acerbic and sharp and witty. Um, mm-hmm. Did that influence the way you characterized Cassie or performed as her? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think she's, you know, she's obviously someone who's very smart you know she dropped out of med school so you know she was definitely she's definitely um really intelligent she's also I think got a really dark sense of humor um and so yeah it definitely and I think also you know it's interesting because we didn't I mean I suppose I never do but particularly with this I didn't go in with a lot of hard and fast decisions about how scenes would be played at all and so I think so much of the wit of it was informed by the other actor and by who I was sort of opposite, particularly with Bo, because he was just so hilarious. Um, and I think, you know, you kind of find your rhythm with the other actor. So, um, yeah, it's just when you get writing like that, it's such a gift and you can just play it a million different ways. And, and that was, you know, that's just, that was so much the fun of it was getting to sort of have a play and do it, you know, do it differently and mess around a bit. So with, you said the rhythm with the other actors. What about when you were working with like Christopher Mins Plotz, the men who were playing kind of your targets? Like, Oh my gosh. Well, I remember we we did a, a little rehearsal of that scene. I think it was like the only scene we actually rehearsed. We did it on a Saturday in the middle of the shoot because we were scouting that location. And Chris came and I couldn't, I just couldn't get through the first half of the scene without losing it because he was so funny mm-hmm. and gross and hilarious. <laughs> and um, and there was a sort of degree to which that scene had to somewhat, you know, it was meant to feel like that sort of rhythm of it where she starts sort of stalking him in a way to the other side of the room, you know, so we wanted to sort of plot that out before we shot it because we were just working on such a small time scale we we had 23 days so wow. every moment we were actually on set we had to be you know pretty much shooting 
so yeah, it was, and you know, really like a big part of my job on this was trying not to laugh when other people around me were being so funny. Um, <laughs> and I had that, I mean, I had that, you know, a lot with, uh, with Jennifer Coolidge, who played my mum, yeah. just absolutely. I mean, some of the stuff that didn't make it into the film, I hope, I want there to be a sort of separate film of just her outtakes because she was so, just, um, so there's a lot of me just trying to keep it together. Oh, wow. That's so funny because the character's so deadpan. Yeah, I know. But everyone around me is a comedian, you know, yeah. and their their comedy is so brilliant because it is done so truthfully and that makes it all the funnier. So, you know, even Sam Richardson, when we're leaving the nightclub, you, you know, it's a couple of lines. But the stuff that he's saying when we're leaving that nightclub and I'm pretending to be sort of out of it drunk is so <laughs> funny. But yeah, I mean, we, you know, it's because it's done completely straight that they're all playing it totally straight and for real is what makes it even more hilarious oh. <laughs> so that scene with uh chris min's plots that mm. seems really interesting because to me that is kind of cassie at her most predatory like you mm. said she's kind of stalking him around the room and there's another moment earlier on where uh i forget the actor's name but the first man that comes home from the bar- adam brody yeah yes adam brody there's this moment where you're lying in the bed and your eyes just flip open you're almost like yeah. a slasher villain in that moment to me yeah i know i love it it was funny we didn't i didn't necessarily know that that was a kind of shot that emerald wanted and then when we were doing it when they set that shot up she just said in the next take just you know look straight down the lens it's the only time in the film that i do it mm-hmm. um but yeah i think it's you know, when you start to see the suggestion that things are not quite as they seem. And and that's what's so fun about that scene with Chris, because the audience is really allowed to see what she's really feeling, you know, because he's so oblivious, because he's so, you know, in love with himself and whatever's coming out of his mouth. Whilst he's kind of rubbing Coke into her gums, she's, you can see that she just wants to, and, you know, I remember Emerald saying, like, you want to bite his finger off. That's how this is, you know, so I remember it's nice to have that you know to see you're getting to see what he sees but also what she's sort of she's able to express how she actually feels because he's not going to notice because he's just too kind of obsessed with himself um so it was a fun scene in that regard because you get to see both because in the scene with adam you know you're still the audience is still hopefully thinks that she's in real jeopardy and that she's not in control yeah um you know whereas later on you know that she is and there's something kind of delicious about that and another thing that's kind of uh, that really struck me about this film is the way that it balances the sort of like girliness with the bright colors and, you know, the sort of unabashed femininity. And your character wears, uh, you know, a lot of uh, makeup and wigs and things like that when she's out on the prowl. How did you kind of balance that with the the sort of dark? Uh, what's happening is very dark, but the, what, what you see is very colorful. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it was so it was part of what was so exciting about even signing on to the film. I remember Emerald sent me after straight after I read the script, she sent me a playlist of music that she sort of was had written the film to, and was a lot of which was already in the script, including mm-hmm. you know, Paris Hilton, Stars Are Blind, and mm-hmm. uh, Britney Spears, and you know, so loads of songs and boys that Charlie XCX song, and it was also this amazing visual board. And she said in our first meeting you know, I'm not going to make a film about somebody in a grey cardigan, you know, staring out the window. This is not that film. And I don't, um, I think it's, it, you know, it's interesting how we use hair and makeup in our day-to-day lives and how easily sort of that kind of stuff gets trivialised. You know, it's, you know, if you have a multicoloured manicure, people kind of don't 
necessarily take you seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think Cassie is very much using that to her advantage that, you know, if she dresses that way, she's somewhat hiding in plain sight, you know, because not only does she look unthreatening, she also looks fine. She looks like she's functioning. And mm. the last thing she needs is someone to say, you know, are you okay? You know, what's going on? Do you, you know, you're not, you know, she, I think if she dressed truly the way she felt, I think it would be a different thing. But this is somebody who's trying not to be seen in a lot of ways. So it was really, you know, fun to come up with her kind of everyday look, but also her kind of little outfits for her evening ventures, you know, the different characters trying to transform herself to not be recognised and, yeah, caking on makeup and doing a really high ponytail was quite fun. <laughs> what about the, the fa- now it's a famous rainbow manicure? Was that, who came up with that? That was Emerald. Yeah, that was on the first mood board she showed me was the sort of pastel rainbow manicure. Uh, Yeah, and it became, it was so funny because it was sort of one of those things that lasted for about three weeks and then they redid them and then right towards the end of the shoot, they started just falling off. So we'd get halfway through a scene and be like, cut, pink is gone, we need pink. (laughs) Pink. We'd have to get reattached to my finger. And um, (laughs) yeah, so it was was sort of nerve wracking last couple of days of filming, just trying to keep the manicure on. Um, but that was, yeah, that was part of her original. She always, always had the, the manicure. Isn't it funny? Like when you are all dressed up like that, part of your mind is always dedicated to, oh, I hope this doesn't fall down. Oh, I hope this doesn't smudge. Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly. Uh, uh, yeah. And also it's just, a, it's a continuity nightmare. You know, you're always sort of hoping that things don't um particularly in the you know kind of climactic scene of the film um but yeah it was it, it part of it was so much you know the the great part about this was the collaboration between Nancy our costume designer Angie Wells our makeup artist and Emerald and I getting to be a part of those conversations and you know coming up with these different looks and and sort of leaning into the femininity and the girliness of it and celebrating it to a degree yeah, that's one of the things I really like about this film is how unabashedly feminine it is. Because like you said, there's this perception that like, I don't know if you would, would you call Cassie a badass? Like, I think she's a little too morally uh, ambiguous for that. But yeah, 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 I think so. I think, I think, you know, it's it's a lot to do with the music as well. Like these are songs that often get put into a sort of pop easy category and sort of, you know, giggled at. And actually, you know, genuinely, Stars Are Blind is a brilliant song. And there's a reason why that montage is so effective, because mm-hmm. you do get swept away with that music. And, you know, it's the same as Toxic. Toxic's one of the best pop songs ever written, but it's also like a brilliant song in its own right. And we often put these things that are, you know, typically or have been typically, you know, female things or you know put into that category and they're they're dismissed and actually you know I think part of this is Emerald sort of celebrating those things that actually we love and we shouldn't have to feel funny about loving or embarrassed about loving because they're just objectively great and that goes for the way the film looks and the way that you know the way that it sounds and and that's part of it that I I really loved. Yeah well let's go back just for a second to these kind of hunting scenes we were talking about before. So you're playing a character who's playing a character how as an actor what is that like is it kind of meta <laughs> um the the greatest sort of release from the stress of that was initially that 
you know, the, the, my sort of most nerve wracking thought was, oh, no, I'm going to play drunk and I'm going to do it badly because mm. um, drunk acting is so hard. And I'd done it in wildlife and I had been so anxious about doing that. And, and so that was sort of a, a you know, I remember early on saying to Emerald, like, oh, drunk acting. Oh, God. And she quite rightly pointed out, look, she's not actually drunk. You know, this is right. someone who's pretending. So just pretend as effectively as you can. And if it doesn't seem real, it doesn't matter because actually, you know, in retrospect, the audience will look back and realize that she wasn't actually drunk. So that was very liberating in a way, because actually, if anybody in that setting pretended to be really drunk, they would most likely get away with it because you wouldn't question that in a nightclub in the dark when everyone's been drinking. You know, it sort of feels like a pretty easy ruse, actually. So that was, yeah, that was a kind of big part of it. And then, I, yeah, like I said about the scenes with Chris and with Sam, I think it's the more fun stuff to play. I loved the scene with Adam, but there was, there was like, it was kind of delightful to get to play the, um, the further the film goes on, you know, really the more the audience is, is let in on, you know, the, the more of it that they, the more of the story they understand, the more of the history they understand. I think the scenes became more and more kind of complex in a way, which was really yeah. nice. Yes, that's the fun stuff. Um, it was yeah. all fun, but like it gets, it, it got you know richer. I think the more the audience kind of knows where she's coming from. Well, speaking of knowing where she's coming from, uh, a lot of times in films about revenge, the main character can be kind of a cipher. I'm thinking about like um, you know old Lee Marvin movies from the '60s or like Japanese samurai revenge movies, or it sometimes are even supernatural. You know, but mm. in this film, Cassie is you know the, like you said, you see her parents and they kind of ground her and who she is as a person. You said you don't come in with certain ways you want scenes to be played, but did you come in with certain character details that helped fill her out as a fully realized person? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was kind of, that was really it. That was the prep. Um, and, and largely that was just Emerald and I talking and making sort of a set of decisions about her life and about, I mean, most particularly about her relationship with Nina, really, mm-hmm. um, and who she was before all of this happened. Because I think she you know, she's, she's sort of dramatically different from who she was when she, before this event. But more than anything, it was kind of important for me not to approach it with any kind of genre in mind or, or with the sort of tag of, you know, revenge over it, because, you know, really, and I think this was, this felt the most important thing to carry through the film was that this, this for her is an act of, you know, extreme loyalty and of love. You know, she's doing this out of real loyalty to her friend. And it's not something that happened to her, but it happened to her best, best friend in the world. Therefore, it did happen to her. And I think that that's, there's something, you know, that this is something that she wouldn't necessarily even do on her own behalf. But because it happened to her friend, her best friend, someone that she felt a sisterhood with, you know, this is something she just absolutely will not let go of, even though everyone around her in her life, including Nina's mum, is saying, like, move on, let it go. And she's just absolutely refusing to. And that feels like love. That doesn't feel like, you know, um, that, that felt like that needed to be the centre of all of it. But, you know, it's someone who actually is just in a sort of warped way acting out their their love for their friend and their kind of grief. So we talked a lot about Nina and that relationship and the event, I guess, that happened. You know, we had to decide what that how that went down. But that was what was so wonderful about working with Emerald because we, you know, just could talk, you know, for hours. And then by the time we got on set, it was great because, you know, we, we'd made a lot of those decisions. But in the playing of it, you know, there was stuff to 
there was room to try things in different ways. And we, we, you know, so we were sort of tweaking things in between takes a lot of the time, which was really, you know, just, it was such a brilliant experience because she's such a good director, but also I think because she's an actor as well, that sort of added another element to it. That answer actually leads me into something. Do you feel that there is like a sadness in Cassie's story in that she is doing this out of loyalty and she doesn't really know what else to do? I mean, yeah, it's definitely sad. You know, it's definitely sad that her whole life was derailed by this event. And I think that's that feels very true. I think the whole film in that sense, you know, has a true ending as well. Um, it's set in, you know, in a set of circumstances that she finds herself in that feels like the truthful ending. And I think that, you know, it is sad, but I think we, we can feel things sometimes even more deeply for other people than we can for ourselves, particularly a sense of injustice on yeah. other people's behalf and particularly amongst women uh, and the solidarity that we feel. And that's felt very present in the last couple of years, most particularly that people feel a great solidarity and uh, a desire to sort of stand up for people, um, stand up for survivors, stand with survivors. But there's definitely a sadness in the fact that, you know, that Cassie's life, you know, took this turn because of something that happened that was so horrendous. So it, it definitely is not you know, that's what separates it, I think, from a typical revenge movie. She doesn't walk away at the end with, you know, sort of burning building behind her and smoking a cigarette. You know, this is, this is, <laughs> you know, this is the, like, a you know, it feels like a, a, a real story about a real woman and her real, her very real and righteous anger and how she acts it out. How did you feel when you first read the ending of the film? Because I thought about the ending of this film a lot. <laughs> Uh, well, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> I, uh, spoiler alert, spoiner alert. I, yes, I mean, I, I was, well, I, the whole way through the, the script, what I loved about it was that I didn't know where we were going the whole right. way through, you know, it's like when you're watching the film, reading the script for the first time was like that. You just think what? Okay. Now I'm, I'm completely turned everything on its head and now I'm in a, what is going on? <laughs> and it was so yeah. wonderful in that sense that you just kept on having everything kind of flipped around. Um, and even to the end, you know, I didn't see it coming and I didn't, you know, shocked and, but I, you know, Emerald was so clear from the beginning that that was the truthful and yeah. honest way to to end the film. And I, and I absolutely 100% supported her and agreed with that because, you know, we just know that statistically that that is the most honest version of what happens and for it to end any other way. I think would would trivialize it and mm-hmm. so it, it, it you know it was the ending that needed to happen not necessarily the one we want but the one right. that you know is what is is right and what is true I think but yeah obviously I wanted a sequel so I was gutted <laughs> <laughs> but um but you know for the sake of for the sake of the film I think it was the right thing <laughs> perfect you danced around that so beautifully <laughs> <laughs> thanks <laughs> Well, I have to say, I have not checked out this film, but uh, your conversation with her made me not only want to check out the film, but just really, like, I, I want to sit down and chat with her. Uh, obviously, uh, your your interviewing skills were on display, but but no, she just seems like, uh, it's like such a, a, a down-to-earth and, and really interesting person to get to chat with. Um, so I was, I was excited that we get to share this with everyone, and uh, I hope you get the chance to catch up with her again in a few years. You'll just continue your... Uh, your trend because I know you spoke with her previously. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, this is a very blatant plug 
But Carrie Mulligan, if you'd like to continue doing interviews together, your publicist has my email address. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, For those of you uh, who, like me, have not checked out Promising Young Woman, or if you want to see it again, it actually will hit on demand this Friday, which, if you're listening to this the day of release, is January 15th. So you will be able to get that on Amazon, iTunes, all the places Mm -hmm. that you normally can get your on-demand content. So definitely check it out. Uh, but that's going to do it for this week's episode of Push the Envelope. Katie, thank you so much for for joining and sharing your interview with Carrie. Uh, I'm sure we will have you back again very, very soon. I'd love to come back. I, I think it's so much fun to come on. So thanks for inviting me back. Always, always. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate and comment and subscribe and do all that stuff that tells Apple and Spotify that uh, you love us. And definitely check out our, our content on avclub.com, including this interview with Carrie Mulligan. If there's any moment of it that you want to revisit, it will be available there. Uh, but until next week, um, bye. Bye. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.